Uh, I'm going to invite Lauren Greenspan uh, to come up and read our text for today from Philippians 1. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have been for the progress of the gospel. It has become known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that my chains are in Christ, and many of the brothers and sisters have been made confident in the Lord by my chains. And so they now dare to speak the word more boldly and without fear. To be sure, there are some who proclaim Christ through rivalry and strife, but others proclaim Christ through goodwill. They proclaim him out of love, knowing that I lie here in prison for the defense of the gospel. But some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not out of pure motives, thinking to stir up even more suffering for me and my chains. But what does it matter? Either way, Christ is proclaimed, whether out of false motives or in truth, and in this I rejoice. And indeed, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. It is my eager longing and hope that in no way will I be ashamed. Instead, I hope that even now, as always, with all boldness in Christ, will be magnified in my body, whether through life or through death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, this would mean fruitful work for me. So what I would choose, I don't know. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. But for me, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith, so that your boasting may abound in Christ Jesus on account of me when I come to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. It's an honor for me to be here with you today and to be given the opportunity to share with you the word. I regret that I'm not going to be able to stick around for the potluck today. I have to catch an airplane this afternoon, so I'm going to be uh, leaving after church. I uh, won't be able to stay, but if I will stay around for a minute uh, to greet some of you because there are old friends I see in the congregation, and uh, it's, uh, I'm grateful to you, Chris, for inviting me to come and participate in this series of sermons and reflections that you're doing working through Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a weighty letter, and uh, look forward to reflecting with you about it. So would you join with me now in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts bring glory to you and be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Every letter tells a story, or more precisely, every letter is a snapshot of one moment in time where the story of the letter writer intersects 
with the story of the letter recipient. I've recently been sorting out old boxes of files and correspondence. And the other day, I was surprised to come across um, an exchange of letters between my daughter and me from more than 15 years ago. She was, at the time, rather suddenly contemplating moving to San Francisco and starting a graduate program. And I had some questions about what she was doing, and I was writing to pose some questions and cautions. And as I read through these letters, I saw that they were full of shorthand allusions to various events and motivations, some of which I had to think pretty hard to recall after more than 15 years. But these, these letters were subtly evocative of a much longer story of a loving but complex relationship between a father and his adult daughter. In the same way, Paul's letter to the Philippians is embedded in stories. And it reveals only a small slice of those larger stories, and we don't know much of what those larger stories might have been. It isn't a textbook or a theological treatise. Rather, it's a passionate pastoral letter from a missionary who now finds himself in deep trouble. He's writing back to a community that he founded in the recent past, a community that loves him and is worried about him, and with good reason, because Paul is in prison. In fact, his letter says he's being held in chains. Now, we don't know for sure where Paul was imprisoned. The tradition says that he was in Rome, and that's as good a guess as any. What we do know is this. The members of the church in Philippi, a small city in Macedonia, have dispatched one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to take a monetary gift to help support Paul and also to inquire, to inquire about what's going on with him. So the letter that Paul writes back to them is partly a thank you letter for the gift and partly a word of reassurance to his worried friends. So as we read Philippians, we must never forget that it's a prison letter. From our perspective in the 21st century, we can place Philippians alongside a whole body of literature, other important writings of Christians who were incarcerated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, much of which was written while he spent 27 years in prison for opposing South Africa's apartheid regime. My colleague at Duke Divinity School, Shi Lian, has written a forthcoming book called Blood Letters. It's a biography of a, Chinese, a Christian Chinese dissident 
named Lin Zhao, who was a leader of resistance to Chairman Mao's communist regime. And while imprisoned, she was often denied ink for writing, and so she would prick her own fingers, draw blood, and write her letters in blood to be sent out to people outside. It's noteworthy that throughout history, some of the most influential Christian leaders have ended up in prison. We might well pause to ask why, why their prison, and why their prison writings have had such an impact, why they carry such integrity and such political and theological force. So in the time we have together here this morning, I want to reflect with you about this one short passage, Philippians 1, 12 to 26. It contains several surprises and challenges us powerfully to rethink the integrity of our own identity as followers of Jesus. So, first of all, the first part of this passage, we'll call this the gospel in chains. One of the most remarkable things about this letter is its joyful confidence. Even though he's writing from a foul prison cell with a chain around his ankle, Paul doesn't complain or portray himself as a victim. He doesn't protest about his unjust imprisonment. Instead, he rejoices and reassures his friends in Philippi that it's all good. Now, how can that be so? Is Paul simply in denial, putting a phony spin on a bad situation? Or is he thinking like a stoic philosopher who insists that no external circumstances can disturb his inner tranquility? That's the kind of thing stoics preached all the time. But no, there's only one reason for Paul I want you to know, circumstances, here's what he writes. He writes, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have been for the progress of the gospel. Now the Greek word here for progress is prokope. It's a word that was regularly used by those Stoic philosophers but they used it with reference to their own individual advancement in self-control and character building. So they would talk about making progress, their progress in the philosophical life. So the Stoic might say, the things that have happened to me have been for my progress. By surmounting them, I've become a better person. But when Paul speaks here about prokope, he has something very different in mind. He's talking about the advancement of the gospel. And for him, the gospel is not simply a verbal formulation. The gospel for Paul is a power. It's the power of God at work, the power of God 
spreading out inexorably and triumphantly around the Mediterranean world. In an earlier letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul wrote, our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit. So when he speaks about the prokope, the progress of the gospel, he's talking about this march of God's power through the world, and he sees his own imprisonment as furthering that progress. So he's saying that that imprisonment and suffering that he's undergoing are actually to be welcomed, indeed celebrated, because they've provided the occasion for the gospel to break out and to expand its whole sphere of influence. Even Caesar's own imperial guards, the Praetorian Guard, have become aware that, as Paul puts it, my chains are in Christ. Is that up on the board? Yeah, there it is. My chains are in Christ. It's an odd expression. And I think he means, it's very condensed, but I think he means at least two things by it. First of all, he's not in prison as a common criminal, but he's in prison because he's been proclaiming the good, new, good news about Jesus. So his chains are for the sake of Christ. And that, of course, would be what the Roman guards by now know. And apparently, this has created some buzz. It's aroused some curiosity that presents the opportunity now for the gospel to be proclaimed to many people who otherwise would never have heard anything about it. But I think the second thing Paul means is something else, because this expression, in Christ, is of course one he uses all the time. And I think here that he means that his condition of being unjustly bound, of being in chain, of being his, saying that his chains are in Christ, it's a sign of his solidarity with Christ's own suffering. Jesus, too, was arrested by the public powers and put to death. And so perhaps, and here, here's the surprise, counterintuitively, the boldness of Paul's witness in prison has inspired other brothers and sisters in the church now to speak the word more boldly in whatever situation they find themselves. They may not be in prison, but they're still proclaiming the word against the resistance of a pagan culture. And that, says Paul, is to be celebrated. So if the powerful expansion of the gospel requires him to be chained up, so be it. The brothers and sisters in Philippi, he says, should rejoice with him. Paul puts it this way in a letter to his younger colleague, Timothy. He suffers hardship for the gospel, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not chained. It's a power. Now, if you think about it, despite the fact that this looks counterintuitive, it's not really all that surprising because we've seen throughout history that the suffering or death of faithful witnesses can unleash a wave of transforming power. In the second century, the North African theologian Tertullian wrote, quote, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. 
the blood of Christians is seed. End quote. So the horrific violence, for example, suffered by nonviolent witnesses for racial equality in the United States brought about the passage of legislation that ended legal segregation. To take another example, the Christian churches in China today are growing exponentially despite government suppression and restriction. You can fill in the blank with many other examples. There's something about the tendency of governmental authority structures, legal structures, to try to clamp down and suppress the gospel, and it always backfires. It always has the exact opposite result. It leads to more power being unleashed. But the question I think that Paul puts before us is whether we, reading this letter now, in our very different setting, whether we also will be emboldened like Paul's brothers and sisters in Rome to speak the word of the gospel more freely, even in risky situations where it might really cost us? Are there ways in which we too might be called to suffer for the sake of the progress of the unchained gospel? I think that's a challenging question. It's certainly a challenging question for people like me sitting comfortably as a professor in a leading university. But the question must be asked, if we're really speaking the word, where is it going to meet resistance, and where might we be called to be bolder about that? Let's move to the second part of the text. There's a second challenge that's presented by Paul's response to others in Rome who, he says, these others are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. In his view, they're promoting rivalry and strife. He's probably referring to these same people when he writes near the end of the next chapter of the letter, quote, all of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's a damning assessment. And I suspect it would not be hard for many of us to draw some analogies to purportedly Christian leaders in our own time whom we believe to be self-promoters. They're building their own careers, they're networks of cronies and not really seeking the interests of Jesus. Here are some candidates on my list of people who might fit that description. Preachers of a prosperity gospel who suck in millions of dollars in contributions from naive and desperate followers. Or denominational leaders who appear to be more interested in preserving the institutional structures that pay their salaries than in responding to the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit in the church. Or Christian preachers who cozy up to partisan political agendas that promote angry hostility towards outsiders and callous indifference to the poor. Or perhaps even divinity school professors who some might say are fomenting rivalry and strife rather than seeking to build unity in Christ. 
I'm sure we all have our own lists. But when Paul refers to his list of self-seeking preachers, he attributes to them, interestingly, the motive of wanting to stir up even more trouble and affliction for him in his imprisonment. I would love to know what he meant by that. If you read commentaries on Philippians, they're full of speculative explanations. But in fact, we simply don't know what story Paul is referring to here. We don't know who these people were. We don't know what they were saying or how their way of preaching Christ might have had the effect of increasing Paul's affliction in his chains. But what we do know, however, is how he responds to this depressing situation. And here's what he writes. What does it matter? Either way, Christ is proclaimed, whether out of false motives or in truth. And in this, I rejoice. Now, Paul wrote a lot of astonishing things, but surely this sentence must come somewhere on the top 10 list of the most astonishing. What does it matter? Either way, Christ is proclaimed. This coming from the same apostle who rails passionately against his Jewish Christian opponent teachers in Galatia and against the self-styled super apostles in Corinth. How can he say, what does it matter if these preachers are preaching out of false motives? I think the only possible conclusion is this. He may distrust their motives and sincerity. He may have serious points of disagreement with them on some points of theology. He may even differ with them on the best strategy for how to represent the gospel in a pagan world. He may regard them as compromisers with pagan culture, but he still regards their message somehow as a recognizable rendering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he can say, in this I rejoice. Now it's agonizingly difficult to know exactly where the line should be drawn between false motives and false gospels. And that line surely must be drawn. But in this passage, at least, Paul surprisingly models for us a hermeneutic of charity, a willingness to shrug off even the personal hostility of rival preachers and to give thanks to God for their work. To speak only for myself, I think that's really hard. I find that a formidable challenge. It's very easy for me, now to give you another of my own lists, to drift toward thinking that preachers who promote just war theory are preachers who advocate abandoning traditional Christian teaching on sexual ethics can't possibly be real Christians. It's very easy for me to drift towards thinking, let me name it, that preachers who support Donald Trump can't possibly be real Christians. 
But if Paul, of all people, chained up in prison, can rejoice that Christ is proclaimed by others, whom he regards as misguided, self-interested, and mean-spirited, if Paul can do that, then perhaps I should not be so hasty. Perhaps all of us should take a deep breath and seek more generously to offer thanks to God that despite whatever rivalries and disputes we may have in the church, disputes that are not inconsequential, the grace of Jesus Christ is still offered to all who come to the table of the Lord. And if that is true, perhaps we can even give thanks that Jesus Christ may use our rivals and opponents to offer the grace of Jesus Christ to all who find themselves living in this wider destructive confusion of a world that doesn't know God at all. It's really hard, but Paul here is, I think he's, he's thinking he's playing the long game. He's thinking how in the long run is the gospel going to go forth into the world, perhaps even through these people that may hate me and disagree with me, but nonetheless they're preaching Christ. This is a hard word. I'm, I'm preaching, I'm, here the text is, is challenging me to rethink some things. The final part of the text, and, and longer part, Paul now moves to reflect not on what has happened and what's going on at the moment as he's imprisoned in Philippians, but he's, in, I'm sorry, as he's imprisoned in Rome or wherever it is. Uh, he's, he's reflecting now on his own future, his own future fate, because he's contemplating his upcoming trial on capital charges. But he continues in the mode of rejoicing, but with a new reason for it. Up until this point in the passage, he's rejoiced because of the proclamation of Christ and the progress of the gospel in a pagan culture. But now, he also rejoices because he knows that, quote, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. It's easy to miss that Paul is quoting the book of Job here. The words, this will turn out for my salvation, are taken directly from the Greek version of Job 13.16. And that echo is significant. In that passage, Job is defiantly declaring his innocence in the face of the holier-than-thou comforters who speak falsely for God and have urged him to confess that his suffering is the result of sin. Job is saying, no way, I'm not giving in to this guilt trip. He insists that he will ultimately be vindicated by God because God is righteous. And that's why he stubbornly declares, this will turn out for my salvation. Once we hear that echo of Job, the parallels are evident. Like Job, Paul is suffering unjustly. He's enduring the additional pain inflicted on him by those with false motives, and he's expecting that he will finally be vindicated and delivered by a righteous God. But there are major differences as well. The most obvious 
is that Job endures his suffering with stubborn, angry puzzlement, while Paul finds himself able to rejoice in his adversity. We've already seen some of the reasons for that, but in, in order to reach another level of understanding, we have to look closely at the way that Paul contemplates his own impending death. As we read this part of the letter, we suddenly realize that Paul is not just talking to the Philippians. Instead, what he's doing is composing a soliloquy. He's letting us overhear his own inward deliberation. He debates with himself whether it would be better to live or to die. And he's finding it a hard choice. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so, he says, what I would choose, I don't know. Another quite remarkable sentence. Life on one hand, death on the other. For me, that's not a hard choice. When I went through treatments and surgery for cancer a couple of years ago, Despite my deep confidence in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, I had no doubt that if possible, I would choose life. The love of my wife and family, the poignant beauty of creation, and the sense of so much world still to be explored, so many things I still wanted to do, All these combined to tip the scale in favor of my wanting to continue in this present life. And so I'm deeply grateful now for each day, each new day that God gives. But Paul, quite to the contrary, makes the opposite, or at least states the opposite preference. He says he would rather die. Why? Now, we have to think carefully about this. He's not saying it because he's depressed and miserable in prison and simply wanting to escape the pain of life in the present. Many people experience that. The desire to be free of suffering is a deep and understandable human impulse. It's, of course, the resonant theme of Hamlet's famous soliloquy, to be or not to be? That is the question. Hamlet appears to be contemplating the possibility of suicide in order to escape the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. He sees a self-inflicted death as a way to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. It would be a way, he says, to end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. But ultimately, Hamlet finds himself deterred from going through with it by, quote, the dread of something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. 
But for Paul, that undiscovered country holds no terrors. He says confidently, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's better by far. His desire to cast off the anchor of this life is driven not by the dull heartache of experience and existence. It's driven by the glowing lure of that future life with Christ. Nonetheless, despite the pull of that promised future joy, Paul comes down finally on the opposite choice. And the reason that he gives for wanting to continue to live, the reason that he gives is at the heart of his vocation and at the heart of this letter, the whole letter's message. Here's what he writes. To remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's determined to stay alive for the sake of his fellowship with his friends in Philippi because he realizes that they need him. He writes, I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. The driving concern here then is community and Paul's calling to serve others rather than what would really be his own preference. He's willing to surrender that for the sake of the Philippians and the wider church. Did you notice that word progress popping up again here at the end of this passage? It's prokope again. The word frames our passage beginning and end. The reason for our rejoicing is the strong progress of the gospel, bringing the good news of Jesus to the world. And now the progress of the gospel is tied inextricably to the progress of the joy and faith we share in common. Paul and the Philippians and us too in the community of faith. Something like that is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. So, Paul is not like Job, a solitary figure protesting his innocence and defying his false friends. He's not like Hamlet, trapped in mental agony and longing to escape. And let it be said, he's not like me, longing to savor the good and comfortable things of this life a little longer. No, Paul is like Jesus. In fact, he's in Jesus Christ, so that his story maps right onto the pattern of the story of Jesus. <coughs> Offering up his life to become a slave for the sake of others, as long as he's given life and strength. That's the life of self-sacrificial rejoicing that Paul, the prisoner, models. And it's the life to which Jesus calls us all. So that is where the story told by Paul's letter to the Philippians now intersects with our stories. As we stand at that point of intersection, would you join with the apostle and with me in a final short prayer.
Let us pray. Lord God, we are bound to you and to one another in love. May Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether through life or through death. Amen.